quite evidently that that organically football cannot, unless we rip down the structure and start again, in its current form, the structure cannot produce the outcomes that we want. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Hello and welcome to this week's recording of the Our Game 2 podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe. It's not something I've asked people to do before because I keep forgetting and I'm an amateur at this, but this is me becoming professional. Talking of professionals, Kevil, you all right? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. What's new in the world at the moment? Well, a big talking point at the moment in the world of football particularly is online abuse, hatred, hate crimes and uh, racism. Um, It's been a really big talking point recently given the amount of abuse that players are receiving. And um, I think this highlights the anti-racism message that football is trying to deliver at the moment. And I think a key factor why there seems to be an increase in hate crime online is given the fact that we're all stuck at home and social media seems to be our only source of entertainment at the moment. Um, Not saying that hate crimes are entertaining by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a key reason why it's happening. And a key talking point, particularly on this topic, has been how do we police online hate crime and how do we hold people accountable for their actions? And there's been a lot of talk recently about having two-factor authentication, um, having email signs up, uh, sign-ups, having debit or credit cards to have online accounts. And I suppose the main talking point has been how we're going to police this moving forwards. And there are a lot of issues with online hate crime. It's not been good for players' mental health. It's not been good for um, minorities and even even um, majority ethnicities' mental health because we are all trying to combat this issue at the moment together, or most of us are anyway. And it, it's it's just a really big issue that needs addressing. And I think the more accountable social media companies are held to police this, the the better our experience online is going to be. Can I just ask you a question? So as a parent of two teenagers, one of my biggest frustrations with them is that they do nothing all day long unless I threaten them with physical violence. I'm kidding if anyone from child age services is listening, etc. Um, they don't look up from their mobiles. So... What do what does a footballer get from and just generally, I guess, what what do people get? What is the fascination with social media that everyone is on it and therefore and opening themselves up, which then allows people to get in between the cracks and and hurt each other? Well, from a player's point of view, players predominantly use social media either to interact with fans um, as a marketing tool or for social justification. There are some players that do gain a lot of confidence out of seeing positive feedback on performances um, and it's it's vicarious. So you play well, you get praise online, you feel better about yourself. From a public point of view, people like social media because they like to be in the know-how. They don't want to miss out on what's going on in the world and Again, it's driven by vicarious feedback. So someone puts a tweet up that's funny or 
you know, abuses or takes the mickey out of another person and they get lots of favorites or retweets for it. And that's their, that's their reinforcement to do it again and again and again. Um, it's also a, a way for, um, you know, people who have racist values or ideologies to portray their messages across without fear of repercussion. So there's a number of reasons why people use social media, but from players point of view, and this is something that I always stress to players that I work with is to limit their social media use, because as we're seeing over the last six months, it's a very divisive and toxic place. And you can do some serious damage to other people unknowingly with regards to their mental health. If you're not careful about what you say, now I'm I'm a big advocate for free speech, but I I do think there needs to be a line in the sand where things do go too far and it gets out of hand and it ultimately becomes damaging to people. I think there's a lot of work being done around this. There's I know the solutions aren't easy. I mean, there's concerns over people from abroad. How do you police them? How do you have different rules? Even people from this country via VPNs, they can pretend to be in another country. You're stopping younger people from having social media if you've got age limits and then what they're going to do to get around that. I know it's something that's high on kick it out agenda. I know the football clubs are now talking about it. I was at a forum last week between West some people involved at, at West Ham, the football club, the council and the police and some former players, etc. talking about it. So it'll be interesting to see what develops. And I guess it's just one of those things as when it targets players, when it targets the players of your club, that's when you become interested. And I think I've seen that a lot more recently because in the last couple of weeks, we've had players from Chelsea and Man United be attacked on social media. And I don't know if it's just a follow on from the events of the last year, but there seems to be a greater desire right now for change. So speaking of online, and we've also got one of the online heroes of our world in Z. How you doing, Z? I'm good, but I don't see myself as a hero. That's, um, that's, that's too much of a responsibility to carry. The Cape Crusader of Asians in football. Uh, what did I say? Not all superheroes wear capes, right? Some of us are behind the social media Listen, screen. I've, I've heard rumours about what you dress up in at weekends, but there you go. Um, Z, what's... I mean, actually, first of all, just tell me, what's what, what's been going on in the world of football? We're recording this on the 31st. It is transfer deadline day. So the first question is, are there any potential Asian moves that we should be looking out for? Um, I think we mentioned this a couple in the last couple of episodes about boys uh, regarding Hamza Chowdhury, whether he still has a, a future at Leicester City. Um, I know Newcastle were interested, and uh, so was uh, West Brom, but there's not been any kind of active moves on that front. He's been part of the first team squad in the last few games as well on the bench, so he's still part of Brendan Rodgers' plans, you can say. Um, but there's not been any active movement on that thus far. Uh, and the other one was regarding Jan Danda, who's at Swansea City, um, and uh, he made an assist again in their 3-1 win. Um, so he to move to other Bournemouth for Leeds. Um, again, nothing concrete came out of that. It's just 
could be speculation talk. It could just be the fact that, you know, both players, for one reason, Hamza's not getting the appearances. So it could be agent talk to get him, you know, talked up about uh, engineer move or bump him up in the first team uh, squad for, for Leicester City. And with Jan, uh, he's coming to the periphery because of his performances and his assists that he's making with Swansea. And Swansea are currently in the automatic in the championship. So there's going to focus on, on, on players who are playing key roles. Um, but yeah, that's that's the only thing at the moment. We'll probably know more by the end of tonight what's, uh, what the real moves are going to be. Okay, fair enough. And talking of moves, we I know we were just talking off air about a player that's currently playing in a different position, Otis Khan. He was an attacking player. What's he doing at the moment? So Otis Khan, is, um, he plays for Tranmere Rovers uh, in League Two and they've been in pretty good form recently. They're running the table to get into the playoffs. And the last six, seven games, he's playing at right back. Uh, his natural position is more as an attacking player out on the wing or the number 10. But he seems to find some comfortability at that fullback position. Um, and it's working, you know, it's working well for Tranmere Rovers. They won their last four games. They won at the weekend as well. So it just goes to show, you know, players are adaptable and they can move around and they, if they need to do a job for their team. So uh, it's always good to see players like Otis and and and, and Jan in the first team, but also performing a job as well. And showing their versatility. Kevin, just very quickly, how how difficult is it to be versatile? Because as fans, you we may, we often think, oh, that player, he should be able to play there, he should be able to play there. How easy is it to sort of switch positions, either not even mid-game, but mid-career? I think it's very dependent on the player and their experiences from the early stages of their career. So players who are exposed to many positions early on tend to have a greater ability to switch positions. I know we discussed James Milner a little bit before before recording this, but he's someone who's been exposed to multiple positions and through experience is now able to play as a utility player. Um, that said, there are other players who do struggle to be versatile in that sense because they haven't had that exposure. And I think that's the reason now why coaching at, at YDP and PDP level is so geared towards versatility because f- football clubs want players that can play a multitude of positions and it's to their benefit because the more positions you can play, the more value you are to a club. Okay, thanks. Z, what else is going on in the football world that we should be interested in? Well, um, I mentioned this our last chat. Mal Benning, um, he marked, he, well, he, he reached a milestone of 200 games for Mansfield Town uh, last weekend because also uh, Mansfield Town have had a couple of games postponed due to other waterlog pitch or because of COVID restrictions. Um, but he's now clocked up 300 senior appearances in, in professional football. So it's a milestone that he's reached. Um, he's a really, really nice guy as well, really put in the hard work. And the fans at Mansfield absolutely love him. They've dubbed him King King Mal. So that was something that was, uh, you know, that came up a couple of last week. Um, and then Issa Suleiman uh, returned to the first team for Vitoria Guimaraes in the Portuguese league last night and uh, they won 1-0. So it was a good good way to come back, keep a clean sheet, help your team to victory. And interestingly enough, in the 15 appearances he's made in the league for Vitoria, 
uh, they've kept seven clean sheets. So that always bodes well for for a defender to have those kind of stats. Good for him. And did you say you've come across a couple of articles or sound bites, clips, etc., which are worth checking out? Yeah, I mean, um, there's one I'll just briefly mention. The um, the BBC Asian Network did a program a week ago. I think it's still on their kind of iPlayer, so you can check it out. Um, I'll mention very little about it, but there are a couple of rookie errors they they made for which you know for for BBC as an organisation you would expect them to make. Um, it was interesting listening to hear the stories of the players like Dinesh Kilela at Bournemouth and also um, Simran Jamat who plays for Lose FC Women's Team in the FA Champ- FA Women's Championship. Just to hear about their experiences and and um, what they're through and and how they're getting on in in their respective careers. But more interestingly, were the articles that I came across last week. Uh, I mentioned about Isa Suleiman. Um, there's a great piece on Joel.co.uk with Isa talking about his move uh, out of you know from from England to to Portugal and how much that's helped him develop as a as a player, but also as a from a human perspective as well, leaving home, having to fend for yourself. And also he made the move to Portugal in January, 2020 before the pandemic lockdown happened. And he talks about how he dealt with that, that, that uh, situation, you know, as a player, you're, you're, you move abroad, you're away from your family. You're going through those life experiences that you know you normally would outside of a pandemic when all of a sudden you find yourself in lockdown in another country and having to basically grow up, essentially. Um, so you, there's, there's great insight into what he did last year and how he coped with um, lockdown in a, in a foreign country. Um, so that was a great piece there. Um, and also there was a young professional at QPR called Dylan De Silva, and their website did a profile piece on him where he talked about his journey in the game so far. And that journey as a professional, you would say, is embryonic because he's only in his first year. But everything he's gone before and is kind of the trials and tribulations of of uh, life as a young player. Um, he was part of the Spurs Academy for three seasons before being released for being too small and then the club saying that they didn't see him as a as a scholarship type player um and then he went for trials elsewhere to other pro clubs and never really got any any sniff anywhere it was just rejection after rejection and what he then what we then have is the follow up story what he did next is go back into grassroots football to play for his local side at barking um to just fall in love with the game again uh, which is quite an important point because obviously we talk about well-being and welfare when it comes to young players, especially, and you you get that kind of first-hand experience of a player who's just getting onto the rungs of professional football now. Talking about how rejection, when he got hit with rejection as a 13, 14-year-old, being told you're too small, I think that's an accusation or that's been labelled at Asian players already. What do you do then? What do you do next? And if there's anything, it's more of an inspirational kind of journey. Read what he did do next, going back into grassroots football to find a love for football again, enjoy playing with his with his local team, with his friends again. And then from that, getting spotted by QPR, who then offered him a schoolboy contract 
that led to a scholarship, which then led to a pro contract. So if we're talking about one person's journey, going through so much, it's, it's relatable to um, other players, uh, regardless of whether you're from the Asian community or not, but how rejection can hit at a young age, how you end up dealing with it and what fruits can come out of, of it, uh, depending on what you do next. Um, so that was a great piece, and that's on their website, on QPR's website, if anyone wants to read that up. And then the weekend just gone on the Saturday, the I newspaper carried an article on Leith Gulzar. So he's a scholar at Brighton Hove Albion. Um, and the piece covers how he's 13 going on 14. Uh, he's spent time with the England under 15 camp as well. Um, and he's been offered a scholarship by Brighton Hove Albion, uh, which is great here for, for a young player. But less on that side, because he's still got the years of development to do and the journey to go through. It was more about learning the insight into what the club has done to be more accommodating, to learn. So the article mentions how their head of academy or the academy manager, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but talking about how he's gone about actively learning about um, certain aspects of, of Leif's culture. You know, he's, he's a Muslim, so they've, they've accommodated him. They, they've, they've added halal meat. Uh, they've... Uh, allowed in prayer space as well and the academy you know head of academy he's actively cluing himself up on cultural differences and just rather than saying I've had cultural awareness training they're not applying it this shows that a club that's actually in in terms of best practice to be accommodating uh it's a great example of that and if anyone you know wants to know what our club is actually doing it's it's good to know that there is some best practice being uh, applied in a professional football club's academy and whether that's the way to go for other clubs it's up for for debate but if we can refer to a an example or case study we have one right there um, but more so on the insight we also hear from his dad as well about uh, the generations and and the reason you know, we, we we talk about the aspect that education is important but Lay's uh, father goes into why education was important for his dad, for uh, Lay's father to go into education, because um, because when you first came over to this country, it's all about survival. And then the aspect is about social mobility and wanting to have a better life and do better. So education becomes paramount. Um, and then the, for the next generation, you make that, the situation even better for them. Um, usually we hear about education is important in the Asian community, but the third generation think differently. But here we have actual anecdotal um, examples from someone who's actually living that practice of where education was important and now how they are supportive of their son uh, pursuing a career in professional football. So really, really interesting um, sound bites and, and information from those three articles. Slightly different to the usual article you read about what are the issues and how can we make things better? This was more anecdotal of individual journeys, but something that can be applied across uh, across anyone's kind of journey themselves in whichever way. Okay, fantastic. I think we'll link to both articles and the QPR website, etc., via on in the show notes if you want to check that out. There, I think um, in terms of 
probably a good time to segue into our guest who's done a lot of work and research around the the obstacles and the barriers that prevent Asians from getting into football. What did you think of our conversation with our guest, Z? It's a very interesting conversation. Um, I've, I've read a lot about St- Stephen Lawrence and I've seen the... Um, the video that you got uh, uploaded on our website as well on uh, the Copper Night piece with him. It was just very interesting into understanding who he was and where he's coming from about his uh, personal journey as well as the work that he does. And I'm really interested in see the next piece that he's working on. So he's got a project coming up, uh, speaking to um, people in professional football, working in uh, uh, positions of influence and power off the field um that piece hopefully be coming up later this month um, and love to have him back on again to talk more about that piece but i guess it was just nice to hear person behind the guy who's often mentioned when it comes to the expert opinion about asian football yeah i mean that's one of his i guess private frustrations is that He's well, not famous, but he, you see him quite frequently giving sound bites. But what he said is that he's actually given a detailed, lengthy explanation, and w- whichever media it is, they've just used a sound bite. And even before, prior to his lengthy explanation, he's got years and years of research behind what he's saying. So he's coming at it from a position of knowledge. It's a shame sometimes that it that I guess one line will just get taken out and that'll be without any explanation, that'll be the reference for his his work. And obviously at that point it then opens up, especially on social media, what we've been talking about at the beginning of the show. People have their opinions and they're gonna get them across regardless. But anyway, listen, it's an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I'm sure you guys will enjoy it as much as me and Z enjoyed having it. And like I said, we will like to get Stefan back on soon. But first of all, here's Stefan Lawrence. Enjoy the interview. Okay, so now me and Z are joined by Dr. Stefan Lawrence, who is a senior lecturer of sport and health at Newman Newman University. Sorry, Z's from Newman. We're just talking about that. It's it's in my head, the ultra low emission zone. Anyway, Stefan, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Okay, so first of all, why don't you tell us why we've invited you on to our Asians in Football podcast? Um, well, I would imagine uh, it's because um, you've seen some of my tweets, uh, some of my appearances in mainstream media uh, discussing issues of race, ethnicity, uh, participation sport um, and uh, more recently I guess uh, British South Asian and British Asian um, uh, participation or lack thereof in, in football. Okay so you didn't mention the golden one which was on our website on the home page we've embedded a video it's by Adam McCola, I believe and it's, yeah. it's about Asians in football it's about a 20 minute video it's on our website or on YouTube and you're the person he kind of goes to for for the facts, if you like. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I've been um, researching issues of, um, as I said, race and ethnicity for about about 10 years now. Um, I submitted a PhD uh, in 2013 
uh, which was around racism in the sports media. Um, I was particularly interested, actually, in understanding how media and the representation of um, a variety of different ethnicities, mainly sort of black, uh, British, Asian and, and white people, how those uh, representations differ, what they, t- what they then tend to teach, particularly white people, um, or how they inform um, the white people's racialized perceptions or white men's racialized perceptions of the world, um, mainly because uh, I think whiteness is, a, is an area that's really under-researched um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's important to shine a light on, on whiteness and white people and to teach white people that they, are too, they too are raced, they too have an, eth- have an ethnicity, um, if we then want to understand how we are able to kind of dismantle some of the privileges that white people have or um, dismantle and then disperse them amongst other ethnic groups, we need to first understand not necessarily just um, a, uh, a kind of traditional focus of racism, um, which is what disadvantages black and brown people. Um, the, the focus on whiteness is asks a slightly different question, which is, well, what advantages white people? Because then it asks the kind of liberal left um, also very important questions to say, well, you know, this isn't just the problem of the uh, the, the far right, uh, the BNP, National Front, etc. It's also asking those that pr- proclaim to want to achieve equality to reflect on their own uh, their own privileges uh, and to to understand how they too are implicated in perpetuating this uh, this this system. Um, that, that privileges um, white people. Um, so, so that was really where my uh, my interests began as in a substantial study. And then since then, of course, post PhD, uh, I've moved into looking at um, uh, issues of um, black, Asian and minority ethnic participation in football fandom, because a lot of the academic research that uh, was published really focused on football fans. But what they meant was white, heterosexual, able-bodied, heterosexual men. So it was about trying to, again, name whiteness in that process to say, well, you know, football fan culture is um, steeped in cultural tropes of kind of like white working class uh, cultural heritage. So if you were then to belong in, um, or if, if there's access, therefore, for black or Asian uh, people to to access this space how, how are they experiencing that space you know what are the experiences of that looks into in, uh, issues of institutionalized forms of racism um, in sport which isn't necessarily uh, focused specifically around uh, British South Asians um, it's looking at um, and, and ethnicity um, more broadly to understand how there are different uh, different barriers and different obstacles for different groups um, so I've produced kind of a body of literature, which is looking at a number of different, really how ethnicity inflects participation within sport um, is kind of my area of expertise. Okay. Um, so when you talk about racism in the sports media, how, what, how does that manifest itself? What are the main, main things that we should either consider or be looking out for? Because I think, previously we've we've kind of touched upon it but that's not an area that we've discussed in any great depth um i think that what we have currently is um a media landscape and a a media ecology which is broadly speaking uh, has made some um 
some positive moves, um, not not in every individual. Um, uh, there are certain print media that I won't name that I think we all are aware of that haven't quite made that that shift. But I think we can be reasonably optimistic that media has become much more liberal um, in its approach. I think we see that now with Sky Sports, you know, back in um, um, equality and diversity initiatives um, such as Kick It Out. Um, I've been in contact with one of the, the producers there that has been assigned specifically to pr- produce that kind of content. So I think what we've seen um, is a, a shift or a more public liberal shift anyway to discussing um, and publicly supporting uh, campaigns like Black, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, and equality and diversity more broadly. So my PhD started around 2009, and I think we were at a particular moment before social media had reached uh, maturity. And I was interested in understanding the institutional forms of institutional forms of racism, um, because that kind of over uh, bigoted, nasty color racism uh, was in decline. I think we saw that in football football crowds; the, the number of racist incidents were going down. It was kind of a cultural milieu at the time, I think, that um, that we had this, that racism was taboo. You know, in public spaces, it was something that wasn't necessarily be discussed. So that was my focus, trying to understand, well, how can we've got this system that disadvantages particular groups of people? Why is that still there if we have this kind of, this, this, this liberal political guiding ideology? So it was trying to understand, for instance, from my PhD study, was to look at how black athletes in um, uh, in sports media were overwhelmingly discussed um, or framed uh, as being uh, to having power and pace and athleticism and strength. And I mean, one of my studies that I've published on men's health. Um, a man's health magazine that when it did um, represent black uh, black people, black athletes, they were usually in kind of some primordial African setting. So there was some like big feature on Senegalese wrestling. Um, the the imagery and the the aesthetic of that was very primordial, um, and uh, they would also then focus on. Uh, black athletes or mixed heritage uh, black athletes uh, as being violent, you know, in aggressive poses, juxtaposed against this kind of very passive, um, uh, stern but not threatening kind of uh, white white man uh, that that we see as an archetype on men's health front covers. But interestingly, um, in somewhere like men's health, uh, there was a distinct lack of um, British Asian representation in that in, in that particular magazine. Um, so on the one hand, you have this kind of very passive, uh, kind of intelligent white guy in men's health, and you have this archetypal, um, sort of aggressive, uh, strong uh, black figure occasionally popping up. And then you had in one 12-month sample, one instance of a British Asian person, which was Amir Khan, um, now, that in and of itself is particularly interesting because I guess in sport, the sports media might say, well, you know, all, all that we do is represent what's already there. You know, we can't magic up a South Asian professional footballer to talk about um, if, if there isn't one or there's only very few of them. Um, but in something like men's health, in fitness and exercise cultures, 
Um, I mean, I'm from Birmingham. Uh, I live in a, a very ethnically di- diverse area. Um, and I see a hell of a lot of uh, Asian guys in the gym who are in great shape, but they're not represented in mainstream media. Now, for the majority of the country, um, or the majority of white people within the country, living in segregated areas, if that's the kind of interaction that they're having with uh, black and Asian people, the only interaction that they're having is through the media, then inevitably that will um, will frame how they then interact or view particular uh, ethnic groups. Um, I think in terms of football specifically, um, and we've seen it, Paul Campbell's done a lot of work uh, about this, and there's been, um, it's Dr. Paul Campbell at the University of Leicester, um, how football commentators, you know, usually very uh, neutral at best, li- uh, sorry, neutral at worst, liberal at best, will use particular adjectives to describe different kinds of players. So um, I think this this argument only really holds if, um, I go back and state for the audience really that there is absolutely no scientific evidence to the basis of race. Race is a social construct. Um, now, this isn't just me as a wacky sociologist saying these kind of things. If you look back at the Human Genome Project, this is a, 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 a theme that is um, is dealt with by main, mainstream scientists. There's actually quite a lot of poor sports scientists still perpetuate this myth. But mainstream scientists, you know, the common consensus among scientists that race doesn't exist in a biological sense. So if we say something like the idea of uh, black guys are faster than white guys or Asians are more genetically frail than, uh, than other ethnicities, I mean, that's just a scientifically untenable position. Um, it, it's a nonsense. And anecdotally, I know that's a, uh, that, that's a nonsense as well as having the scientific evidence that's there. So, so it's interesting to understand how... Um, these stereotypes emerge within football and not only how they emerge through uh, football culture, how they're then uh, re-perpetuated into scouting networks, into um, football industries in terms of those that make decisions in positions of power. Because, I mean, mean, it's not necessarily the case that racism works on, I don't like black or brown people, therefore I'm not going to recruit them. It's these kind of tacit um, common sense, and I'm using scare quotations here, um, common sense that well, all oh, right, well, you know, like the Asian guys just aren't um, as uh, as strong as the black guys or as the white guys. So I'm not racist. I've got loads of Asian friends uh, and all that kind of stuff. But why would I waste my time if I've only got so many games at a weekend to go and look at? Why, why would I waste my time going to uh, to watch um, you know a predominantly Asian team? Because there's thing that's there that I think kind of the biological thing that's there. Uh, but also the myth that exists in terms of, um, you know, the, the assumption that white kids have a supportive family network that know the game. That's kind of just implicit that's there. Um, you know, why, why would I waste my time, even if there is a good kind of Asian lab, to 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 go down there and then I've got all of this cultural baggage is is um, is some of the the terms that I've heard used. Um, in, this is informally. I've not got anything like that on tape in my interviews, but informally, there's kind of those issues there, the cultural issues um, that we've got to deal with as well. So, you know, it's just a safer option, um, you know, time pressure, uh, you know, money and investment to, to kind of develop particular players. So uh, I've, I've kind of gone a little bit of a trajectory there through how media myths, how they then um, manifest within our everyday and how that then 
has a material effect on the uh, the production line or the or, or talent identification. But um, but yeah, but I don't know if, uh, yeah, no, if that answers the question. <laughs> I can't remember what the question was to be honest. But listen, it's that was really interesting. So when you when we talk about the sports media, and yes, that we've 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 sort of heard about the studies where they looked at how the language commentators used, etc. Um, and I'm trying to think what my question is. I guess my, which I know you've partially answered it in regards to how does either a lack of representation or no or negative representation in the sports media how what what kind of impacts does that have and i guess where do you start because it seems to me quite obvious that that would just seep into people's minds right from every single thing that they consume so where do you start in kind of tackling that breaking that down so that people become aware of it oh well i, I mean i'll give a, an example um there was a, a well-known local journalist had um, fallen into um, what what I think is is quite lazy journalism. I mean, this particular journalist is a really good journalist, um, but just fell into lazy journalism when um, a particular team had uh, had had bought bought a player, black player, um, and he was interviewed um, and he'd said. Yeah, you're going to bring loads of pace and power to the centre midfield. I was kind of like, me knowing this particular player, um, I thought, he doesn't really bring that as the quintessence of what he brings. You know, I think he brings a bit of guile, creativity, but, you know, it it just seemed like lazy journalism. So I tweeted the guy uh, and said, love what you do, um, but, you know, I think that's falling into a, in a diplomatic way, to fall into a bit of lazy journalism. I think you're better than that just perpetuates this this trope of kind of like the black athlete as being physically superior and uh, reducing them to the physicality. Uh, I mean, Emi Anura's book, um, uh, if you've come across it, um, I, can't, I can't remember what it's called, uh, Pitch Black. Yeah, we've got um, Pitch Black. Really, yeah, yeah. And start to talk about that to say that, of course, um, that, that those, uh, those myths exist uh, and... I mean, if it was the case that um, the only thing uh, that this particular player, pace and power, was what he brought to the team, then you would have so many um, weightlifters, Olympic weightlifters in centre midfield. Interestingly, of course, the majority of those gold medal winners are white. Um, but that, yeah. that's, that, that's, that's, in, and also uh, track sprinters, also high jumpers. Um, and um, swimmers, uh, swimmers. So you've got all of these actually gold medal winners who are white, but the the reason for their superiority is never racialized. Never because they're white. It's because because of their endeavour. That's, that's uh, taking me off on this slightly different tangent. Anyway, so I kind of make this point on Twitter, reaching out to this particular journalist, and uh, this was public. And of course, I had um, a probably about a month or two just vicious trolling from the fans of this particular club. Um, um, Sort of, uh, you know, fake Twitter profiles of me uh, suggesting everyone and everything is racist and, um, you know, me being offended uh, for, on behalf of other communities. And of course that's not, not quite what we were doing. We were saying that 
I've got a link here in the PhD study between the representations of, um, uh, of, of a number of different ethnicities and how those messages are being perceived by white people um, and how then, therefore, that translates into their views of different ethnicities, because, of course, um, that that naturally happens. So in order to challenge it, it's difficult because there's that pushback all the time, particularly now in the age of social media. The social media has squared the circle. And it's allowed people to have what were well, actually views that never went away. I published a paper called uh, Backstage and Frontstage Racism, um, again, in the early um, early uh, 2010 is, I think, when we were starting to to bring the, the, the data together. And it culminated in Donald Sterling. And if you remember the Donald Sterling case um, at the LA Clippers, who was the LA Clippers, the basketball LA Clippers, yeah. Um, he there was a recording of him talking to his his mistress um, about how she, he didn't want her gallivanting with black players and don't bring black people to my uh, game and all this kind of really overt racism that, that she'd recorded and released released out. We talked about uh, Kevin Hilton and I um, about how. Racism or that old bigoted colour racism had uh, retreated to what we call the backstage or private space. Um, but what social media has done is enabled the uh, that backstage speak um, to have maximum public impact, but whilst the, the speaker can remain private, can remain in the backstage because of the avatar. So... You can find all of these other these people on Twitter with avatars who won't show their face because they know that uh, that kind of old bigoted racism is is still looked at, you know, with disdain by the majority of people. So I, I think that it's increasingly difficult now to uh, to call out that kind of racism um, without putting your head above the. Um, you know the parapet for it to be shot off, which I mean that's why I do the, do what I do, and it's just part of the part of the job. Um, but it's it's education. It, it's it, it's education. It's about promoting um, these particular ideas because the world is complex, and the reason why everybody wants uh, an answer why there isn't a uh, you know a British Asian superstar, but it's complex. There is no silver bullet, and we have to accept that. Um, there is no no simple answer, which is why when I looked at some of the comments actually under that particular video, um, I'm not sure whether whether everyone had actually watched the video or had just saw the the question and decided to answer it. Um, it's it's about so educating people. Just nodding our heads to anyone who's listening because we see that all the time, all the time. <laughs> Sorry, Steph, go on. No, 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 no. It's, uh, you know, even, and I mean, I'm looking at this now and I'm looking at some of the myths that exist, um, not just within the football industry more broadly, not within sport media more broadly. It's, um, it's about also addressing some of those uh, those myths that perpetuate um, within um, ethnic minority communities, and in this case, British Asian, Asian communities. I mean, there was the brilliant Stuart Hall and, and sort of the work by Franz Fanon had said, you know, that the... the and he, he wasn't he wasn't saying this literally saying the greatest achievement of the of the west and it wasn't a great achievement it's the it's the greatest um uh, um it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing basically he was saying it, the greatest achievement of the west 
he's enabled us, and he was talking as a as a black scholar. Um, the greatest achievement of the West has been able for it to help us see ourselves as other. So we see our our own frailties reflected to us by um, a system and a particular civilization, a particular culture that sees us in a particular way. And then we internalize that and we start to believe it to be true. So, you know, the idea about genetics that, that I started to see, um, so oh, we just haven't got very good genetics with some of the comments or, you know, mom and dad want us to be a lawyer, full stop. That's the, and it's kind of like, yes, those are factors. You know, they do, they are, they do present as barriers, but they also present as barriers to other ethnic communities. I mean, I'd also made a point about in that particular video about um, socioeconomic status being um, a factor. Um, and then, you know, kind of the, some of the comments about, well, well, that can't be the case because there's loads of white working class kids and there's loads of black kids, right, who um, are also poor and um, they uh, are, are able to make it. So that, that, that's a non-starter. And it's, and it's to say, well, when you then put the socioeconomic disadvantage, you know, into the mix with this assumption of cultural baggage, of genetic frailty, of this idea of not feeling um, like uh, British Asian kids belong in academies because they can't or, or are unwilling to participate in the banter or the, the racist banter, etc. When you put all of that together, then it is an issue. It's not an issue per se, but I mean, I was, I was, doing, I was looking at this when I was talking to some um, uh, black and Asian fans when we were doing the paper for uh, their experiences of football fandom. And they were saying, that, first of all, they say one of the main reasons is I can't afford to go. Um, and it's like, right, okay, well, that's very, very common. And we should then start to, to look at how that affects all kind of working class or, or, or people who aren't salaried in the same way that, uh, that middle class uh, fans are, for instance. And, and let's, let's take that. But when you, when you then put that into the mix, because well, I already feel like I don't belong when I go into the stadium, um, then it becomes, a, uh, it, it, it becomes even more important and even more emphasised so it's not the case that these things exist in and of themselves and therefore they are not, uh, they're not an issue. They, these points of intersections of oppressions or of disadvantages, they work with each other. And the more of them that you've got, the more, you know, that, that idea of a football team, it's more than the sum of its parts. It's exactly the same kind of thing. It just means that there are more barriers, there are more issues for particular communities than, than, than other communities. Did the journalist come back to you, the one that you tweeted? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, he did come back to me. And, oh, well, you know, I describe uh, the white players uh, like that as well. And then kind of the... Uh, so so just, he denied... Just he, completely I guess he denied it, it in, in effect that he'd... Or denied the possibility that he'd made a mistake... Not made a mistake, but had assumptions, yeah. had a filter that he was seeing the world yeah. through. And, and, and that, that is the, I mean, this is the problem with liberalism. Liberalism is absolutely um, dead set on treating everybody the same, regardless of their starting positions. So from his position, he's saying, you know, he's going, well, I call this white player pace and powerful as well. And I call it, and he's going, yes, but... It would be lovely if we lived in a colorblind world where race and ethnicity and color had no meaning, but it does. It, it, unfortunately, it does. So when you were saying that about um, the black player, it has more credence. It has more impact than when you're saying it about the white player. 
one of, one of the things that white people hold very, very dear to them is their individuality. And this is one of the main tenets of whiteness, that white people can be seen as individuals. So that's the reason why when Jimmy Pedophiles are Savile, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Pedophile, Jimmy Savile's a pedophile. You know, that's why nobody's saying, right, yeah, let's, uh, Stefan, will you please come out and speak on behalf of your community, please, to condemn pedophiles? And he's going, well, hang on a minute, I don't have to, don't have to do that because that's what that's yeah. white privilege. I don't have to, as soon as, um, you know, something happens which involves black or Asian people, well, you need to condemn this. You know, you, you as a community need to come out and condemn, uh, to condemn this kind of, kind of thing that's there. So he's going, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? I, use, I use it across all of these people. I talked to this guy about pace and power and this guy pace and power but race unfortunately is a thing i mean i've had people say to me, you're getting offended for nothing you're trying to you know trying to kick it out and stuff they're inexistent getting themselves in a job it's like i would humbly suggest that my skill set um it could be applied to other things i could make a shift completely to researching something else but i don't not because i'm trying to get myself in a job but because i think this is a real issue that needs to be challenged you know, so so when when this journalist has come back, he was the archetypal journalist, nice guy, liberal, not in any way, as far as I can see, um, was uh, was a racist. I think um, you know he was himself had uh, had dual heritage or, or mixed heritage from from somewhere else. But when people are, they are so uh, they're so frightened of being called a racist. That yeah, very defensive, it, yeah. It's defensive. No, 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 it's not an issue. It's not an issue. I haven't said that. And it's not like, actually, if we all start take, um, start from the position that we all have prejudice, including including me, including you, including all of us, right, because that we are human beings, we are imperfect. I don't know everything about everyone else's culture that's not my own. And therefore, I will have certain learned ignorances, right, which, which is the term that we would use as sociologists. That's one of the things I wanted to perhaps bring up, which is what we're hearing a lot of, of course, at the moment, not just within football, but in a number of work, um, workplaces, this idea of unconscious bias. Um, that's the term that psychologists would use. Now, to me, it's a really problematic term because I think we've got that, you know, if we can get scouts, we can get coaches on unconscious bias training, and then all of a sudden we'll be able to have more sort of uh, British Asian uh, players coming through. It's like, well, it kind of gets people off the hook, that, to me, because what it's trying to say is that we don't have access to our unconscious or our subconscious brain. We don't know we're doing it, so we can't be held accountable for it. You know, the term I prefer to use, and I make this point um, to anyone that would listen, um, is that what we have is learned ignorance, and then I think that's a really important term to, to introduce, really, because ignorance is something that we all have. We're all ignorant to certain things. You know, in, in everyday parlance, we might use it as a pejorative term to somebody. But that term ignorance just means something we're not aware of. And the learned bit is that when we learn uh, to be aware of certain things and unaware of other things. So if, if we accept that ignorance is learned, then we can unlearn it. So it places more of a conscious emphasis on somebody like Greg Clark, for instance, to uh, not to say, well, actually, I wasn't trying to be offensive. It was just the case that the cultural environments and the people that he surrounds himself and the boardroom environments in which he surrounds himself with, um, they, 
the challenge to particular views or the challenge to particular language just hasn't been there over the years. That's not to say that he was intentionally trying to create an environment which offended uh, black and Asian people you know, and said, well, they have different interests. And to him, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the guy. He might be racist. He might not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. But that, that to me, is a false conversation. That, that's not where. Let's let's talk about um, really the things that are going to make a change. Calling somebody racist and using that term racist in the mainstream media is going to turn people off because to them, racism is not liking somebody or saying nasty words to to somebody. And it is that, of course, it is. We need to call it out. We need to do something when we see it. So that's not right. What you're doing, but we also need to start from a position that actually we all have learned ignorance about different cultures and different ethnicities. We start from an open place of wanting to learn. And my respondents in a recent piece of research that um, I've been doing, which is to to speak to those um, who identify as British Asian or British South Asian, who work within administrative governance and board positions within football. That's kind of what they're saying to me. It's like, they're going, look, I don't know everything about what it's like to be a British Italian, doesn't make me a racist. And I'm going, no, no, of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. And, I, and they say, well, that's the same. You know, if, um, it's the case of coming to and having an openness to go, look, I don't know everything about uh, your culture, your ethnicity, your background, but I'm willing to learn. How can we, uh, how, how can we make things more inclusive instead of starting from a position of kind of defensiveness? which I think a lot of liberals actually do start from a position of defensiveness because, you know, they don't want to engage that conversation for fear of being called racist. I was, I remember uh, now it's probably about five, six months ago. I think it was a couple of months after the whole George Floyd tragedy and system systematic discrimination and institutional racism was 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 bandied about etc i did come across a journalist on twitter who said that he'd gone back through to his scouting reports of players when they were coming through and he'd compared what he'd said then to to now post george floyd etc just to see if he'd recognize what with the language, any disparities. And I can't remember who he was, but he he admitted to exactly that. There was several black players and he named them, said, these are what, this is what my scout report at the time when there were youngsters breaking through said, now that I'm more aware of language and its, and its power and these filters that are coming through, it was not the report I would write now. I was hoping that would be the same journalist, but it doesn't sound... Like it, it was unfortunately. Um, Zee, any questions before we move on? What you mentioned there about just from a journalist, from a journalist point of view, they're supposed to be the purveyors of news, right? They're supposed to be the ones with the facts, and then giving you an a sense of from the stories what they've gathered as facts and truth, right? Because you're, you expect journalists to mainly be objective and not be involved in the story. Um, but I've been a journalist myself as well. And I think at times that's a sensitivity. The journalists are very sensitive people because we're going to be the ones, because when this, uh, the world has changed now obviously with social media and then print and where print has declined and social media has become king of content. 
where it was written on black and white paper was fact. It was basically gospel. And when you question someone on what they've said, it can make people defensive. It's kind of thing that you're talking about. Uh, and then matching to what you're saying about unconscious bias, because it's, so, it's deep rooted that you can't see it. Therefore, I am what I am. I can't really, you can't change me from the inside. Like, it's so deep down that it will be generations before we can change this thing, right? Uh, when you mentioned that term about uh, learned ignorance, I think we're chatting to this about, with you offline as well, but in the social media world where everything is offensive or everything you need to have an opinion on straight away, right? You'll say something and there's a hundred comments already within seconds of you saying something. You mentioned this being, being trolled by people in terms of what you wrote. No one's willing to listen. So how do you, we get to a point of saying, learn ignorance, what does it mean? Don't be offended by it. Let's talk and listen to each other. How, how do we get to that point? And then in your experience of talking to people within the industry of football, do you, I guess I'm making several points here, but I think one point is how do we get the term learned ignorance into our everyday psyche that it's not an offensive term. It is, it's a reflection of who we are and we can learn to think otherwise. And my second question would be when you talk to people within the industry, do you find that they've assimilated into how the culture of football is? Because you could be black, white, Asian, but you go into a machine. And I find this when I went into, into a corporate world, you kind of assimilate how things are done because they've already been that way. So you could be from any background, any color, but you kind of find yourself assimilated. Um, so the second question we had, how do we get to a point where we can change the machine from within? Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really excellent question. Um, it really is. No, but, but everything you said there, I know I, I can completely agree with uh, Echo that as well. Um, I guess I guess it is about trying to break down those structures. And simply, it's, you know, I, I've been around a number of different professional bodies in sport. Um, and it's not just about ensuring that we have black and brown faces it's about having black and brown minds as 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 well um because we can we can we can have a you know a wonderfully diverse magazine or glossy brochure with all sorts of different people playing football playing sport or in a particular organization but there also has to be some cultural shift and somebody that's willing to uh, to be a bit of a trailblazer and to say, well, hang on a minute and hold people to account. Um, and I think we are seeing that. I mean, your, your point about assimilation is one that's been well-documented across a number of different industries that there's a certain performance of what a professional person, you know, when I hear that term professional, to me, it smacks of whiteness, it smacks of middle-classness as well, which is something I've always really struggled with you know I mean from a working class community um it is about performing a particular version of yourself and that has to be that I mean when I when I I mean I'm fortunate enough to to work in Birmingham at Newman University um you know I'm really proud to say that our um student body is incredibly diverse um because of the nature of the university where it is etc and it's probably the it's really the most enjoyable place to work on many levels because when I talk about institutional racism in the classroom, people are going, well, yeah, that's a thing, obviously. Whereas other places I've worked, you know, some of the, the white kids are going, well, well, hang on, let me just think through that. It's 
the, the conversation doesn't flow as much. But I say to I say to the guys there, I, you know, I'm quite open with them because I, I operate with a race conscious uh, approach, um, which is informed by critical race theory, which you might have heard Donald Trump and uh, you know the uh, equalities minister. Um, have a go at. I don't think they've ever read any critical race theory, by the way, listening to them talk. But I operate with the race conscious approach, and I acknowledge that this this liberal idea of colour blindness does not work. It 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 doesn't work. We have to acknowledge that people are different, and that's okay. And we then can engage the conversation a bit. And I say to those guys, look, guys, you know, if you're going to work in sport, right? There's a particular way when you go to a, a, an interview that you probably need to dress and they probably need to talk, right? Because I'm, I'm with you. You know, you can be who you are and there's nothing wrong with who you are at all. Don't, don't take that from what I'm saying. But you've got to learn to a certain degree in certain environments, right, to, to act or perform a particular identity which is more um, recognisable. To those people, the other side of the the, um, the table, you know, eye contact, for instance, you know, that's very, very important, you know, um, which there's certain cultures, of course, where, you know, you're not making um, eye contact with somebody that you perceive to be more, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, in 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 uh, in more privileged position or, or a superior position. So I was like, mm, think about that. Learn how to do wins and not, you know, learn to do those things when you're inside. When when you're inside, you know, then then you can start to make noises uh, about that. But you know, to get in, there are certain um, certain ways that you can do it. And I mean, there are other approaches, of course. You know, there's that kind of more, you know, Malcolm X and Mo, uh, Kai Andrews um, that you'll see on um, Good Morning, um, who's a, a friend of mine. You know, his approach is very different. You know, it's 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 kind of it's it's out there. So I think there are there are room for a, a number of different approaches where you're kind of calling uh, calling people out in different ways. It's about having a collective of people that have different have the same goal, but but different uh, kind of approaches to it. So so and I mean and that's the for the individual to decide what their approach is, um, but but to me it's about acknowledging how can you fit within that culture. You know how do you how do you negotiate belonging? And I think there are definitely stories of that that people have started to talk about. Um, there's one particular um, uh, person or respondent who's saying, you know, I talk about my love of rock music as opposed to you know. And somebody said, oh, I thought you'd be into Bangra. You know, oh, well, I'm into rock music. You know, that's what I'm into. Um, so those kind of that cultural capital is what. You know, as sociologists, we describe it. You know, knowing what kind of jokes to tell, or how to re- respond to um, certain conversations. Uh, you know, and that's one of the things as white working class that I've had to kind of get a little bit more to, to know about. Because is golf. Golf is never a thing to me. I couldn't afford to go to a golf course. I never grew up with golf. But you know, people in that particular circle. You know, so I'm oh, okay. So, so it's about. Um, it's about understanding those codes. It's about understanding that particular culture, uh, not selling out. So I'm not saying we sell out and that we become, but it's about just understanding how, what are the things that, that we can do to, to make that particular, um, uh, that process easier. I think the also thing uh, that, that I'd like to say on this is that it, it, it shouldn't always be on 
you know, um, black or Asian communities to assimilate, to change and to have, it should not be, and that's kind of not what I'm saying, and that's one way of do, doing it. It's also about the recruitment processes um, within football as well. There's probably one, two, three, perhaps, recruitment agencies that are continually used within football to recruit people to um, to governments and administrative positions. Um, and that was a move actually, which was to negate the uh, the old kind of old boys network, uh, the social cloning. And if we outsource it to a recruitment company, the recruitment company can can look for a suitable candidate for us. But what seems to be happening at the moment actually is that that's just outsourced the problem to another individual private organisation that has a commercial interest in in uh, in placing somebody. So. Uh, if we're going to use recruitment companies within football, then let's use recruitment companies that have a deep understanding of um, the talent pool that's absolutely there uh, within uh, black and Asian minority ethnic communities. Because if you kind of a white guy uh, that has a commercial interest in placing somebody, um, which of course recruitment companies do, they'll take a fee and then they'll lose the fee if somebody leaves after six or 12 months. There's a commercial interest in that particular person already going into that culture, liking it, understanding it, being accepted in it so that they'll stay there. Um, so so that's a thing. Blind CVs. I mean, I've had a number of different other respondents saying um, I've had to change my name. And as soon as I change my name on my CV to a white name, you know, uh, I can't. There's a, there's, a, there's a comedian that does a sketch about I think it's Ramesh Ranganathan, I think, actually, does a sketch about it. Maybe it's not. Anyway, talk about how we all have a, uh, you know, he's discussing, you know, how, who was it? Can, can you help me out here, guys? There's a guy who does a skit anyway who's going, you know, we've all got a, a white name, but it's or not. Chowdhury, possibly. Tommy Sandu. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. But I remember seeing that, but, but you know, the, the, it's made in a humorous way, but it's a serious point. There's actually testimonies of people saying that, you know, in football, I changed my name and I was getting more interviews, you know. So blind CVs um, is, uh, is 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 a thing Can that I should be there. I think. Interrupt you there for a second. For yeah, of course. This is a, an argument, not an argument. I've had several discussions around this. Where, listen, the names thing is massive. I've lived my whole life in in England, and I've struggled with pronunciations of my name and what name do I give to people and that assimilation thing, etc. Um, there are in. Actually, I've got no idea. Z probably has a better idea. But if you look at the Asians or those players of Asian heritage that have made it, it seems to me, anecdotally, a higher portion of them would have a a white name. Like Neil Taylor, for instance, um, Jimmy Carter as another. So on the playing side, do you think how much of a difference do you think that makes? Because that's something that I've never really thought about on the playing side. I understand it fully on any back office positions and admin and even coaching, mm, et cetera. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Well, I, I think that, you know, if, we, if we're talking yeah, about, about playing cultures, um, then the, the, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't looked at it in, in much detail in, in that, but I think it goes back to the same kind of, it's a cultural thing then. It comes to talking about cultural capital again. Uh, it, it, what's important within playing um, 
communities. I mean, I was at Crew until I was about 16. I was at Warsaw before then. So I was in those academy structures and then going back, um, uh, looking at it from a research perspective, it, it it's part of the cultural capital. It could be another thing. I mean, there was a guy that I used to play with, Danish, but he, he didn't go by Danish. He went by Dan. Um, you know, um, now, was that a, a conscious thing? I, I, I don't know. Is it a, a, an act of assimilation? I'm not sure. I haven't spoken to him about it. But anecdotally, that was a thing that was there. What was more important was participating in the WhatsApp group, you know, with uh, scantily clad women or going to nightclubs or, um, you know, or uh, or drinking, uh, which, of course, is a, a barrier for, for those of the Muslim faith. And I look at those, actually, that I know who are Muslim, um, who have, uh, some of them have have made it, uh, cricket, football, uh, and their attitude towards alcohol, let's say, is a little bit more lapsed than than, than others. So I think what's, what's incredibly important as well from the playing perspective is the participation in banter. Now, this is this is really important point, I think, to make. Banter is an incredibly uh, important part of sports culture. And what a lot of, particularly white guys, when they are, because of course masculinity is, is, uh, is tied up in this as well. Of course, what is the function of banter? The, the, well, the function of banter is to show uh, camaraderie, affection and love for another man whilst appearing to deny it. Because when... In football coaches aren't going, mate, you're a great lad, love you, come here, it's brilliant. I mean, there's increasingly a bit more of that, but, you know, it's still a, a, a very, uh, you know, dominant form of banter. It serves that purpose. You're our mate, you're great, I love you, you're great. But I can't say that because, you know, I'm a heterosexual guy and I don't want people to question my sexuality. So when, of course, uh, I used the example in the video of a guy uh, when they were uh, warming up, uh, you know, he was quite um, uh, pious, quite devout in terms of his faith uh, as a as a Muslim guy. And um, they were on all fours and they were doing the stretch where you cock your leg up. And one of the guys had said um, to him, is this the right way? Are we uh, we pointing towards Mecca. And he was offended by that. And he he, he took that as as being our way of excluding him. Now, I don't know the intentions of the other guy. I wasn't there. I don't know the other guy. It's just a story. And I'm, this, this is in no way means to uh, belittle um, how, how he took it. That was the important thing, how he took it. But I also think that there's a, there's a thing that's there where it could have been the case, and again, I'm speculating, that he was using that banter as a way to say, we're kind of including you here. We're making a joke of it. We are... Um, we're trying to show you that, uh, or he was trying to show, the captain was trying to show that he's included. Of course, he might not. It could have been the Trojan horse kind of kind of banter, which is actually, I'm going to try and exclude you. I'm, I'm going to, I want to make a point. I, I don't know how it was. But, but there is that side to it, that there could be instances where banter's flown around, but if you reject the banter, it's kind of, you're, you're rejecting from that, that person's attempt to... Um, to show camaraderie, but it's, it's, it's incredibly complex. This is why for me, so it shouldn't be, you know, when people say it's not rocket science, people should say um, it's not sociology. 
because rocket science, you follow particular form, formulas and, you know, you get these objective outcomes as result. As soon as you throw people into the mix, things be go, go non-linear. Things become really difficult to, to, to start to, um, uh, to decipher. So I, I guess what I'm saying here is absolutely not to belittle how he felt. That was how he felt. And if we look at the broader context in which that particular statement was uttered, that reinforces the dominant position of the captain and it dom- reinforces the dominant position of, um, uh, of how that particular white, uh, that white guy had achieved his status. So it is a form of racism in a way because it does perpetuate that system of exclusion. But it becomes more complex, therefore, when we think that this, this, this idea of banter within football culture um, is, is so central that if we take it that its function is to attempt to show affection, um, if it's racialized as well, we can start to see how um, banter could be done in a different way. It could be done without those kind of ethnic and racialized dimensions to it, for instance. But to get kids in academies uh, between the age of 12 and 16 to engage in that, that process of, oh, actually, uh, how, how do I create an exclusive? That, I mean, that's difficult. And that, again, comes down to, um, to education, which I think this neatly brings me on to another point that I wanted to make, which is this idea of welfare within, um, within academies that if it shouldn't be on that 15, 16 year old kid who's perhaps got, got that learned ignorance who, um, and we're taking it that, that, um, that this particular example that I've given, um, we're going to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, for instance, that he wasn't trying to be viciously racist to this guy. I mean, it could, could be the case that he was, and we should, we should take that seriously. That, that it's not just about developing um, talented footballers. It should also be about uh, teaching our kids that welfare, equality, inclusion and diversity isn't something that's done by uh, a particular department or, as is often the case, one or two people within a professional football club. And I think that's what we see really with people like Greg Clark, you know, at the top of the FA. Um, oh, yeah, we've got a department for that. And there's some great guys there, you know, Kev Coleman, who's just moved on, and Dal Derek, who are really doing, doing some good stuff. Um, but they are part of a bigger machine, which culturally um, is that oh, we, we've got the equality and diversity stuff um, covered because we've got a department that's doing that. It should be part of every single person's remit, at every single person's job role throughout the football industry. Then we start to say that if you're a coach, that you're going, actually, it is my, my duty to, to perhaps uh, teach or to put some kind of... Um, you know, classroom based or, uh, you know, education on to say that this is how we create a, an environment that is inclusive for everybody, but also um, takes on that aspect of uh, talent ID and player development, which is often at the forefront, which is how do we get the best player with the littlest amount of resources possible. And that's always the tension within, within this kind of work. It's getting people to see the value in equality and diversity work um, at every, every level of the game. And that, and that is difficult, but it's a challenge that we all need to, uh, to keep on with because it's important we do so. You know, I think there's a point I mentioned before about something that's deep-rooted or the way you always think of 
think of things right is it okay to uh, do you think um the way you educate people should be we accept that that's how you are and that's what your thoughts are and we're not going to change it overnight but there's devices you can put in place for say an older generation that's always thought that way you know you get those uh people say oh he's always you know he's of a certain age he's from a certain generation he thinks like that right is there a way you have different forms of education or devices for different uh, age groups generations ethnicity that kind of thing like in terms of when we talk about education what does that what does that look like for different people it's, it, it's a really good question um uh, to me um it shouldn't be a point of education for somebody like greg clark greg clark was one of the most um influential people within the game of football we, people like that should not be being employed if, if, if regardless of how old they are if, if they don't have an awareness of these issues and that's not just to do with ethnicity and race it's also to do with gender it's also to do with sexuality it's also to do with disabilities if you don't you should not be at the helm of a an institution like the fa so it's it's an institutional issue in that sense um, and of course, you know, there's those generational differences. I don't think it's, you know, somebody like Ron Atkinson, you know, um, all those years ago when he was heard off, uh, you know, it was, it, there was a recording for our younger viewers, perhaps that didn't know about this, who was heard describing Marcel Desai as a fucking lazy, thick N-word. That, uh, t- to me, that, there's no education there. Like it should be the case that like that that should be quite obvious to to lots of people that that's wrong, you know. Um, I, I I just I just think if if you're in that position of power, then there the, the should be no education at that point. If 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 you if you want to engage in education, then I mean that's uh, says very authoritarian of me, but I, I, I guess it's the case of on a personal note, if Ron Ron Atkinson wanted to. He should be offered it, but that should deem him unfit for such an influential, powerful role in, it's, in it's such a socially significant environment that he was in, that he was willing and able to say that out loud as well. Yeah, absolutely, it does. I mean, it was, it's really interesting why he why he he felt comfortable in that particular environment to say that. Um, I'm. I'm not sure why, but I know, and I've, I've been there and I've seen it, you know, years and years afterwards, you know, Ron Atkinson still at the LMA Awards dinner, dining out on, and I looked around that room when I when I sat in it and, you know, the diversity was probably Patrick Vieira. Um, can't remember anyone else. You know, I mean, that that old boys club um, that's there is slowly changing um, and... I like to think now, particularly, um, that, that that things are moving forward. They're more, they're moving forward slower than we would like, um, and I think we need, we all need to keep pushing that forward. But holding the feet to the fire of, of professional football clubs, the Premier League, um, and saying, "Look, you know this this isn't changing quick enough, and you need to engage more." And the way to do that, I've tried to give some practical examples because I think. And we talked a little bit beforehand, didn't we? That 
you know, we, this isn't new now. This issue of the lack of Asian representation in professional football or coaching, etc., isn't new. You know, it's another, it's another thing, it's another decade that we're that we're discussing this. Um, and I think it's important that we move things forward. And I think one way to do that is to ensure that boardrooms, you know, uh, administrative departments, uh, governance departments, are, and this is coaching academies, etc. Um, are more representative of the communities that play the game. Um, and that, for me, is the way to move things forward. Because if you do have people within positions of power um, and of influence within the game that are making decisions, not just on whether this particular kid you know, gets a contract or not, but is making um, decisions at the whole governance level of the club, that's how change happens. I think, you know, having conversations with, with people at uh, Kick It Out over the last 10 years or so, you know, one of the things that they say that they see that when a CEO is on board, you know, we, you start to see some real change. But until that happens, you know, it does happen to be little pockets of really good people trying to work against the machine. And how we change that they stop going to football, but is that going to happen? Uh, hit them in the back pocket where it hurts. You know, if you if, if if it's if it's that much of an issue for you, then then don't go and support those th- those teams. But will that will that make any material difference? Because the majority of people that go and watch professional football clubs are white working class men. They still are. You know that that that's changing. The demographic is changing. Whether the culture of football fans changing as much as people like to think it is, um, I would be a little bit more sceptical. So it's there is no silver bullet. There is no quick answer. It's about uh, you know people that have this interest who believe that this is a you know um, a worthy cause. Keep chipping away um, and uh, and keep making a noise about it. And you know this this podcast, for instance, I think a really. Uh, a really vital enterprise in in trying to achieve in trying to achieve that you know more people that are vocal about this and are saying look this isn't this this is you know two decades of the same kind of conversation because I think a lot of what the research has told us um, now and I think Dan Kilvington wrote a a, a piece in the uh, conversation and if you if you guys saw it about um, and this isn't new research when the research from Beyond Entertainment came out on the, the survey um, of, you know, football fans thinking that it's uh, a shame uh, or a stain on the game that there aren't more Asian players. There's there's a body of research that I've been contributing, Dan's been contributing to, and, you know, scholars, you know, like Dan Birdsey, Artie Ratner, for, for many, many years, who've been saying the same sort of thing. Um, so... How do we move the conversation on from this to keep kind of making that, that okay, everyone wants a British Asian player to, to represent England. And that, of course, is a worthy thing. But how we get there, we need to be more creative. And I think that's, that's, that, that's one of the ways that we do it is to by thinking about how genuinely we've got people across football who understand what it's like to be a British Asian kid in the academy um, it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that's that's Asian. It doesn't have to be someone that's black. It just has to be someone that that understands and has taken significant time to understand those challenges and offer 
you know, a, a holistic or make that, that case for a more holistic uh, approach to uh, talent ID, to player development, but also instill it within the commercial departments at clubs. Instill it within the scouting networks. Instill it at board level that this isn't just something that we do in the inclusion uh, and equity and uh, diversity work. This is this is something that we all should be judged on. And I mean, I'm not sure about what you guys think about uh, quotas, for instance. You know, um, what's you know what's your what's your views what's your views on on, on introducing quotas? So my my personal view, look, if if someone wants to put bring some quotas in a small number i'd be all for it i know our other co-host who's not with us today is dead set against it um but i think as you've mentioned there's a bit of frustration in your voice this is something we've been talking about for 20 years and i think something there needs to be some form of jump start to it i don't know that's that's where i think i don't know where z sits on that the thing with quotas is um, with, when we talk about South Asian communities, it's kind of homogenized, right? Same thing with when you talk about Africa. Uh, Africa is a continent, not a country, but we say African, it's an African language. But when you break down the, the countries in Africa, they've got, you know, Nigeria has like four or five different dialects and languages, right? So when we talk about if you're going to have a, a quote, I just say on the South Asian uh, communities, we don't have to break down the the communities that represent south asia that represent south asia communities in in britain right then what does that number look like and i think this with quotas there's always going to be an opinion on it my opinion is i'd want to i'd want to know how that would look like and then how do you get fair representation across the communities uh, one thing secondly you then have to look at if you're looking at each if you're talking about academy football and this at the moment it's 91 pro clubs in the four leagues right and do you then have to look at the demographic and the the location where these these uh, these clubs are at and do the quotas change per club per region per per location there's a lot more that goes into it i mean the top the top line figure is would a quota help it would definitely be a talking point and you probably get more people into the funnel i'd say but I don't, I don't know what that looks like if you're saying the quota system. I know in America you've got the Rooney rule and that's come over a period of time. And one thing you mentioned, it was because of Dan Rooney, like our owner of a club, who said we need to put this in. It came from the top, didn't it? You could have the grassroots campaigners pushing for it, but it came from the top to say start something, right? And that's the same thing that you're saying. So I'm, it'd be interesting to know what the leaders of the clubs are saying, what needs to happen and, and how they see it happening. Because... I think we see football, I see football in two different ways, right? I see football as the 90-minute end product entertainment brand that everyone has an opinion on on 606 and social media. And then there's the, the profession, the, the actual industry, which is completely different to the 90 minutes, the everyday stuff. The 90 minutes is pretty much us switching off and watching the game and having an opinion about the game. The industry we seem to have we you know we have, we have an opinion about the industry but we don't know enough about the industry um but i think i'd i'd want to know what people at the very top and i think that's that's what you were alluding to as well talking to people within the governance and within the structures of the game at the top what their thoughts are and then how realistically it can be implemented because we can all have an opinion and say yeah quote needs to happen brilliant what does that look like from the people who are going to have to implement it 
what resistance are they going to face the uh, blockers and then how how they overcome that mm. so that's 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 the real piece of work that needs to happen i think the as much as progress has been slow i get that we also need to have a patience with the fact that we're still human beings that we have to be convinced by certain ideas and then put it into our mechanisms or places of work and is that then it's like whose responsibility is it? Is it going to be individual clubs? You've got four, you know, forward thinking clubs like Forest Green Rovers, that's because of their own and going down the eco ecocentric route, right? Oh, not ecocentric, sorry, wrong word. But in terms of being you know, more eco-friendly and 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 introducing things there, but do you expect all other 90 odd clubs to do the same as they are doing? So it's such a big machine, it does come down to who's going to take responsibility for for implementing any changes that includes quotas and everything else i don't really have an answer <laughs> in all of that i don't really have an answer but it's just a case of just kind of expanding if anyone's listening about how big this can be but also how simple it can be as well you know mm. it can be simple it can be really simple but um i don't want to equate time to it i don't want to say we've been talking about something for 20 years and we haven't seen anything happen because, to be honest, I've I've been uh, reporting on it from a kind of ground level in terms of the playing side of things for about 15 years. And I've seen changes. I've seen, say, 15 years ago, we didn't have players from Asian community who went through the football life cycle, like went from academy into pro football to retirement. Now we have, and there's lessons to be learned through their journeys, mm-hmm. ups and downs, dealing with injuries, dealing with different managers coming in, dealing with going to different clubs, like, all of that is learned experience that we can now tap into from a playing side of things. Same thing needs to then happen with those learned experiences within coaching and scouting and everything else. And I, I just feel like, really, um, from my perspective, we all have played different roles. You have a role, I have a role, I have a role. My role has always been trying to get those stories and the journeys and understanding how that works and putting it back out into the medium or whatever wherever the noise is right now right now it's on social wherever the work you're doing and I, I, I always love listening to anyone who's involved in psychology or sociology of things because they provide perspective which can sound so simple but there's depth behind that simplicity right mm. like when you put when you put yeah, out yeah. a research piece you basically say we've done tons and hours of research to come to this perspective mm. No one's willing to listen to the tons of hours of work that you've done. You're, they're looking at the top line perspective. So going back to the point about quotas, it would be interesting to know what that really does look like. Um, and if anyone could project that or model that and see this what could happen based on these things happening, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's three things there. that I, There's two things that I, I wanted. Well, there's three things I wanted to pick up on. There's, there's one thing I really agreed with. You know, theoretically and conceptually speaking, of course, when we talk about um, British Asian communities being heterogeneous, uh, not homogenous, but being heterogeneous, that's a, that's a point that I've been making for uh, for for a long time. You know, I look around most um, conferences that I go to, which are um, which which now increasingly, because that's where my kind of research focus at this minute in time has shifted to, to um, to the diversity within uh, the football workforce. Um, at administrative and board levels, etc. I was in a room and I was speaking to somebody, a uh, British Indian Sikh guy. So if you look around the people that are in this room, most of them are Punjabi, Punjabis. You look around 
you know, so I get that. And then we look at sort of like the, the, the poverty of British Bangladeshi and British Pakistani communities. And we're talking statistically speaking anyway. Uh, it's not to say that individuals haven't been able to um, uh, to confront that stereotype, of course. Um, so, yeah, I get that. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point that not enough people within the football industry know. However, I think that's a very sociological approach. And it goes against my training as a, as a sociologist because... I do a, I'll give you for instance, um, in this response to that particular, uh, uh, that, that particular conceptualization of, of, of heterogeneous communities. Um, and what I mean by that is, and this happens all the time, whether it be from students or whether it be to, uh, if I'm doing some consultancy work somewhere, which is I do uh, an activity called the privilege walk. When I, um, for those people that you guys probably know, but just for the listeners perhaps that don't, is I ask a series of questions, which are things like if you have, if you would expect to have um, experienced some discrimination um, of some kind uh, by your age, take a step forward. Um, if you have experienced racism, take a step forward, sexism, all that kind of stuff. And then what, what we're usually left with, with uh, a room of, um, people at different points and we'll call it the privilege walk to say that look not everybody has the same opportunities within sport right and then we all agree and it's all oh, it's terrible it's, oh, it's not really good and oh, they're bad and, yeah what should we do we need to move forward we need to make change we need to make sure everyone's equal everyone's on board uh, you know in a, in a theoretical sense we're all on board and when I say to people okay one thing that will change this right is quotas oh well oh Oh, hang on. So when you then give them something that's concrete and you you move the debate away from, from theory abstract to, to something that concrete that will change, this is when we start to get into this this uh, this debate about whether they work or not. Now, my my personal position is that we need to have quotas. Um, and I asked, asked you guys, so I was interested in what you thought, because I'm absolutely used to that diversity of response. And there's no consensus Um on it which is well I want to be the best person for the job and it's like well hang on a minute what makes you think that Paolo Di Canio I think this was the best person for the job at Sunderland what makes you think that Phil Neville was the best person for the England women's job what makes you think that um you know Frank Lampard is the best person for the Chelsea job? what have all those guys got in common all right. So to me, it's the case that again, if you look at Greg Clark, we look off the off the um, you know at the uh, off the field. Why heterosexual able-bodied men who are connected have been getting quoted onto boards and into positions of power all the time? We don't call that quota in. We just we call that the old boys network, but it's but it's the same thing. It's, it, it it has the same kind of. And I'm going, right, if this was a new debate, we go, all right, let's try the diplomatic channels. Let's try the diplomatic, um, you know, all the more kind of, uh, you know, diplomacy or the structural uh, things that are there. Let's try, let's, let's try that. Let's try that. But, but this, you know, gradual social reformism that, that, that's there. I mean, hang on a minute. We've been having the same conversation for, and it's not changed. It's quite evidently that, that organically football cannot, unless we rip down the structure and start again, in its current form, the structure cannot produce the outcomes that we want. And I, I'm, I'm going, yeah, I, I get the heterogeneity. I respect that. I understand that. Um, absolutely. But we could apply that same argument to all communities. 
I don't feel represented necessarily by the uh, the current structure by the Premier League. You know, as a white, uh, you know, uh, I'd say I'm middle class now. I guess I have to say I'd love to hang on and be a working class hero, but I work in a university and read book for a living. Uh, I, I don't feel represented in in that particular structure by those particular people. I don't they represent me. So to me, it's it, it it's more important to, and, I, and someone put it really well to me and said, if they want a token. Know some, I'll be that token, you know. I'm quite happy to be that token if it means it gets me on the on the inside. I'm talking about somebody, um, you know, a British Asian guy who said, I'll be that token. I'll, don't worry, fine. If I'm there because I'm a token, great. I'm, I'm there because I can make real change. Um, but of course, I've heard on the other side of things, people say to me, Well, you know, it should be blind CVs. I don't want to be employed if that particular person has only got me an interview through some kind of legislation that's been introduced, which says that if they don't want me, then I don't want to work for that company. And I'm going, yeah, I get that as well, which I, I understand that. But I always throw back and say, you know, when I've when I've been employed certain places, not at my current place of work, I might add, but I say, oh, we thought you'd fit in well here. There was that, that particular sentence, right? to me, is the most interesting sentence because there's an assumption there that that isn't just about me being being marked against the job criteria. And it's the same with playing cultures as well. It, 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 Colin King's work on playing the white man, which is quite a, an old text now, but I think it's, if anyone hasn't read it, to go and read it, to talk about how race is important within football cultures, which is the case that he's talking about how uh, black kids aren't just judged on how good they are. They're also judged on their relationships with their white counterparts. And that absolutely happens and is applicable to uh, to South Asian kids as well. They have to be so much better uh, in order to, to move on. And it is about, I talk about it in the video of this idea that, that pervades within a number of the top academies. And I think relatively slow really in England it's more of a continental thing but, you know over there the idea is that if you're a good person and you're a rounded person you'll be a better player you'll be able to deal with the, the stresses and that's really something that's come over with a lot of the coaches that we see in the top academies now this development of the whole player but this particular narrative this psychological narrative will you know some of the coaches will be looking at this notion of ego is this guy egocentric or is he a team player is he able to um, I'm talking about men's football, of course, here, and I have been for the, uh, that's the assumption that I've made throughout the whole podcast. Um, that that particular thing that's going on um, means that, okay, if I'm if I'm a young lad that's experienced racism, you know, and I'm being judged against this criteria of, um, maybe it's not even implicit, it's, it's tacit most times, um, of how do I react to, can I subjugate my, personal needs against those of the team uh, or below those of the team we're talking about race and how i feel and how this and that 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 kind of goes against that particular model um of of development you know that if, if i can say as a player that um you know if i'm talking to a coach that doesn't understand actually how uh, how much racism institutional over or otherwise impacts on somebody's mental state on and how their ability to uh, to perform, um, then that is 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 a problem. If you if you don't know that and you've spent no time thinking about how that particular instance, they might say, "Well, okay, this got sticks and stones, my break my bones, but names will never hurt me." Is, is the majority is what I was told as a kid. 
So if you if you come into it from that particular, oh yeah, he's called you with this or that, or you get over it, you know, and then move on. It's what we might call microaggressions, and I, I write about it within a particular chapter that I've written on um, race and racism in the Premier League. This idea of microaggressions and microaggressions, of course, is um, you know it might be something from having nothing that you can eat at the buffet um, on the awards dinner to you know somebody um, making a comment which uh, certain people might find um, offensive because of uh, religious or, or ethnic reasons. But those little things in and of themselves, if you take them in isolation from each other, it can be a, a, a you know, throwaway comment to somebody, um, you know, well, that's, that's just another thing that's there, you know, you know, get rid of that. Just put it to your back in mind, forget it. And that's a very masculine thing to do, by the way. Oh, take the notice, you know, just, just get on with it. That's not how the human brain works. The human brain takes a lot of notes of things that perhaps it, it shouldn't do. Um, and that obviously has, a, has an impact. So if you have a lifetime or a career of microaggressions of feeling excluded, of feeling outside of the dominant culture, then that inevitably impacts upon performance, uh, home life, um, and, and, and every other facet of, of, of life in general, I guess. Left by a the, thousand um, the thing of yeah, yeah, I'm just using fancy sociological terms, and that's a really elegant way of putting it. Um, that re- it really is. I mean, I, I guess the other the, the other thing was in in response to the other point that was made. You know, I don't see football as being you know the ninety minutes and then uh, this other thing, this industry thing that's there. I see them as a, you know they are inextricably linked. That there is that symbiosis between all of them, and. I mean, I, I come from a privileged position that, you know, I've been inside some of those spaces, spoken to those people, soaked up that culture, seen how there are some really good people um, trying to do uh, good work at the FA um, and then try to engage with people that don't understand that the FA Premier League and the FA are two different separate entities and how that came about, you know, those commercial interests that we then talk about. So I come from that from, you know, that privileged position, but, but nonetheless, to me, having you know experienced being um, a scholar at a club, you know, being from a predominantly kind of white working class background, you know, being very, very, um, you know, blind to issues of ethnicity when I was a kid, really. Although I'd played with a lot of black and Asian um, kids growing up um, in the in the Warsaw area, uh, Warsaw Birmingham area. To then move that tra- trajectory and looking back, I'm absolutely convinced that these things are inextricably linked. It's not a case that, you know, that we might think that, you know, somebody that works in the commercial department is not important to the culture of the club because I absolutely are. But me as a sociologist being interested in culture, you'd probably expect me to say that, but I'm absolutely convinced that it is that cultural change. I was told this by a sports lawyer once that, that uh, that, that was we, we were talking about issues of inequality and, and diversity. It's absolutely not the case, though, if we do have a legislation that says, um, you know, inclusion, that that makes real change. It's that genuine cultural shift which has to come from a holistic development of the industry, of governing bodies within that industry, of powerful organisations in in that industry, shifting to the status quo or the default being, well, actually we do inclusion and diversity as part of our job role, not as a kind of special outside that will do some unconscious bias training that will tick off, um, that that will then create a more inclusive environment for everyone. So 
Well, Stefan, how uh, how did you spend lockdown then? 2020 was obviously difficult for most people. Um, but how did you spend uh, uh, 2020 and what were you up to? I spent a, a lot of time uh, like we all did at home, but that was great because it gave me... Um, uh, a lot of a lot of time to focus on projects um, and currently I'm working on a project um, that's been endorsed uh, or we've received a letter of endorsement um, with uh, or, or from from the FA um, and uh, it's looking at the lived experiences of British South Asian people uh, who are working in governance and administrative positions uh, within football for those who've been successful really um, or those who have been able to rise um, to positions of influence and, and power, really to, to, to kind of, uh, to challenge some of the myths that exist about uh, British South Asian people uh, within the game, that um, it won't come as a surprise to many of your listeners that, um, that, that British South Asian people don't just work within the IT departments, um, as, as Greg Clark famously, famously uttered. Um, to kind of to deal with some of those myths that exist uh, within the football industry, but also some of the myths that exist um, in and amongst uh, some some South Asian communities as well about uh, you know football not being um, a a viable route. Um, so it's it, it's trying to look at best practice um, to say well this has been particularly good on the on the part of the, uh, the football machine. Uh, but these are still some of the barriers that we need to move forward with. And I'd be happy to to come on again and uh, perhaps have a, a more detailed conversation um, off the back of that, um, if if we can, uh, at some point. Uh, that'd be superb. I mean, we've had uh, Raj Atwell previously on uh, on the podcast talking about his experience in the game. And he's just taken up a role with, uh, with a team in the Indian Super League. Uh, so it'd be interesting to hear more stories uh, and more experiences within the non-playing side of things. Um, when can we expect to see something uh, coming out from, from your research? Hopefully we're um, going to be releasing some preliminary uh, findings uh, within the spring um, or early summer, sometime around then. Uh, but yeah, Raj is a, a great guy. He's a friend of mine. And, um, you know, it's great to see somebody like him um, being rewarded for his, for his hard work and his experience in the game. Amazing. Amazing. Um guess we just want to round off um the podcast it's asking the uh, i say a simple question but it might not have a simple answer um there's a lot of desire um you've seen on the chat on, on social media and other aspects as well where people want to be want to see change want to be part of change right but there's so many aspects that we can't really agree on what that one aspect of change we want to see um from your perspective with the research you've done people you've spoken to is there one particular cause or, or action that we should all get behind um trying to create that change and you know speed it up a little uh, for me i think it feeds into what we were saying a little bit earlier on um which is about um i know that you talked about it when we were talking about offline really uh, about understanding um you know what uh, what skill sets we all bring and being the best possible version of ourselves or, uh, you know, that, you know, you guys in the podcast, I mean, that's, 
you know, make the best podcast possible so it uh, reaches as many people possible. You know, me try to produce the best quality research possible. You know, um, people who were involved in the game as coaches be the best possible coaches possible. I, I think that is the way for us to make real uh, change, that we all focus on being the best possible version of ourselves, um, you know, and working towards, um, you know, a, a you know, as Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. I, I know it's a bit cliche, but there's a reason why that particular um, phrase has has, um, has been around for as long as it has, because I think it it really uh, uh, it really speaks to how we can make change. I keep saying there's no silver bullet, and I still believe that. I guess um, it is about making a noise um, about understanding where our skill sets are in terms of, you know, some of us will be, you know, talking on podcasts and doing research about things, uh, but that's no way, uh, you know, meant to suggest that, you know, being a coach running the Sunday league team um, is, is any way below that. You know, I see that the, they, they have equal value, uh, if not more value, if you're, if you're on the front line and grassroots, then, you know, then kind of talking about these things, you're actually making change. So, yeah, you know, it's you know, it's been about being humble. Um, it's about um, understanding that um, that we all bring something to the table, um, and it's about listening to each other. It's about listening to each other's perspectives and trying not to start from a position of, um, you know, uh, you know, scepticism necessarily. It's about let's listen to what this person's got to say. And then we can um, agree to disagree if we need to, or we can say, I haven't thought about it like that. That's great. Just be open, open to those ideas, I guess. Amazing. So where can we find out more on uh, what you're working on? How can we keep in contact with you? Your website, Twitter, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Stefano Lawrence. It's at uh, Stefano, is S-T-E-F-A-N-O. Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, or one word, uh, is my Twitter handle. And then I think there are a number of links if if anyone has any any interest in, in that kind of stuff um, from from there on. Stefan, from myself and Apu as well, thank you so much for coming on, being a pleasure. And uh, we do look forward to seeing you soon and finding more about the, the research that you've been working on as well. Well, thanks again to you uh, guys for having me on. It's been a pleasure um, to to ramble on a little bit. And I know I do a bit, but but the world is complex. (laughs) 